0: Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jensen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They're sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here is your host, Jacob Jensen.
1: Hello, and welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today uh, we're going to have a really great show for you. Uh, Today's show is called My Counselor and I with my counselor, Jerry Flanagan. Uh, What we're going to talk about today is some of the importance of aftercare and how important aftercare is, Um, not just treatment, the 30 days, but really what what aftercare is, what it entails, and how important it is. So Mr. Flanagan graduated from the Wisconsin Institute and did his postgraduate and certification work at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and DePaul. Jerry is a certified counselor with extensive experience in alcohol and drug treatment. Jerry has been in the alcohol and drug addictions field for over 25 years as a supervisor and counselor in adult and adolescent inpatient and outpatient programs. Previously, he was the Youth Family Program of Milwaukee, uh, for a four-year period, had numerous addiction programs at Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital and served as a consultant for the Tellurian McGovern Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Mr. Flanagan's credentials are in supervision and training of alcohol and drug treatment, and he's also seeking new and better treatment processes. Currently, he is the coordinator of substance abuse services for Alliance Counseling Center. Now, Alliance Counseling Center has been the facility that I've used uh, for about the last six years, and Mr. Flanagan also trained me as a certified in intervention specialist. So, uh Jerry, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Uh Jake, it's it's good to be here. It's good to see. You. It's the first time I've seen your business setting. I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I I love the uh the, the setting and the ambiance. Uh, also all of the the uh, technical equipment you have and at your disposal and so forth. So, I am. I'm very impressed, Jake. Well,
1: thank you very much. It was a, a lot of work getting here, but it's certainly worth it. So, uh, what kind of work did it take for you to get to where you were at? Can you please tell the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and why you decided to get into counseling?
2: Well, I can. I can share this with you, Jake. When I when I had decided to go into counseling, it, it was it was as a result of a great deal of testing and aptitude testing and and so forth through the um, uh, Department of of uh, uh, Vocational Rehabilitation Services, uh, the state of Wisconsin, then the federal program, and and the last thing in the world I thought I was ever going to be as a drug and alcohol <laughs> counselor, having been in five major treatments prior to that.
1: I can relate. Being a hedge fund manager, I never thought that I would get into this field either. So, <laughs> I, uh, I, had, uh, uh, I I
2: had I I had attempted recovery so many times of my own being being a recovering person and in having had reasonably good treatment and, and so forth I I can't complain at, at the uh, at the help that I had up to that point but it it came to the crossroad of, of do I stay in my chosen field at that time of I was a sales manager and and also owned two funeral homes at that time. Uh, quite a paradoxical uh, uh, background <laughs> and experience. So, uh, but th- the lifestyle in both of those vocations was not conducive to Jerry staying uh, clean and sober. So I went through all of this at the at the suggestion of my counselor at that time. I went through all of the. Uh, aptitude testing and and so forth. And every single time I've ever done that, it always comes up counselor. Uh, well, counselor in the in the funeral, funeral field or counselor in the insurance field, whatever it might have been, because uh, that's where most of my time was spent uh, was counseling. But but the dream I was ever going to be a drug and alcohol counselor was the furthest the furthest, the furthest thing from my mind. So. Uh, he had, he got me set up with the people at, um, uh, UWM and, and DePaul and, 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 uh, interviewed and they accepted me as a candidate and I was on my way to being a counselor. I had no idea what that was going to mean. Uh, other than it meant that I had to stay sober and clean <laughs> and, uh, Uh, And it did help in that respect, but isn't the solution to that problem. Yeah,
1: I know for me, uh, when I was in that first year Being able to uh, go out and speak about what I went through at treatment facilities, that idea that I was going to be able to go out and help people eventually at a certain point, I know, really pushed me along. Um, You know, going through the prison system and the jail uh, and and helping people when they were at some of their worst time really helped me realize that this was something that I wanted to do as a career path, uh, not only to keep me clean, but to find that my sense of purpose in life. Uh, So... Can you tell, you know, uh, our listeners a little bit about Alliance Counseling Center and, and what you do there? My parents um, realized how important aftercare was after a 30-day residential program, so, uh, and, and linked me up with Alliance Counseling. I'm so glad they did. So can you tell us a little bit about what they do there?
2: Yeah, Alliance Counseling Center, uh, first of all, we're located in, in Heartland, Wisconsin. We have a suite of offices there. It's our, kind of our home office. Then we have a suite of offices in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and a suite of offices in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Um, and the offices are, are armed with, with uh, licensed and credentialed people. Uh, uh, about half the people there work in the drug and alcohol field, all licensed to do so. And half of them are in the mental health field.
1: Which is so important because uh, usually with a substance use disorder, there's always, you know, or most often an underlying condition too. So for somebody to be able to get help with alcohol and drug counseling and then maybe get help with family counseling or grief counseling or some mental health issue, um, fantastic. Sorry, continue.
2: Yeah. Um, And uh, the, the, uh, the counseling centers are 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 uh, set up to work with domestic violence clients we have a complete program where that's concerned in all the offices uh which is now uh quite quite uh, demonstrated throughout the system and and uh, and we have a very successful program where that's concerned we also have a a uh, program working with heroin addicts and and uh uh we're not heavily uh, set up to to work with uh, the suboxin uh, population, although we can. But prefer to to work with the uh, uh, talk therapy part of it and help that person through with with uh, medical support other than suboxin. But we do use suboxin at times. But. Uh, um the programs within the clinics are there's primary outpatient now i 'm speaking in terms of drug and alcohol now primary outpatient uh which is is the usual and customary abstinence with a with a twelve to to uh, twenty six week uh, um, uh, program uh, of uh, group therapy and individual therapy uh we also have a a uh, Aftercare component to that program uh, that can range from six months to to uh, to uh, four year. and a half years. <laughs> in some cases it was four and a half years. Right, I, I'm still
1: seeing geriatric so, labs so, once a month and very so, happy to do so.
2: But at any rate, uh, this is this is uh, uh, it's a broad based broad brush uh, system. And yes, we know that we have to be involved intensively to an extent in the first two to six weeks, uh, but then we, we we prefer to use what they call the the uh, the, the short term therapy process, which takes forever. <laughs> uh, it's less intensive but over a longer period of time so. So um, they call it the brief therapy program. Well, it's not really brief. It's over a long period of time. But we find that a two-year period is a very successful period for most clients that have uh, addiction,
1: so to speak. And I still go to a professional group uh, once a month. uh, And... Alliance Counseling offers an impaired professional program. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about how the impaired professional programs differs from you know some of the other traditional programs that you have?
2: Yeah, I think I, I think uh, the impaired professional program is is a a unique program in that in that it is the people involved in that program are are professionals, as as it stated, but but uh, also uh, such as doctors, lawyers, nurses, uh, and so forth, but also business uh, people, men, men and women, and we have a women's uh, program as well, um, uh, uh, made up of business people and so forth in, in corporate settings and, uh, and who own businesses of their own. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty involved program on that basis. So it's peer support. In terms of, of of its peer involvement, so uh, the program is 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 yes, it's it's the brief therapy program. Uh, we ask that they make a commitment for at least a year and preferably two years when they get started. But and the success rate has been excellent in it, been excellent, very good. The the um, uh, Uh, The 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 program needs to be flexible in its involvement, and that lends itself nicely to the two-year period, because professionals from time to time have special situations. Yes, the the primary axiom has to be there. Abstinence is is the baseline. Uh, All of the professionals in the in the field all agree on one thing, and and we may differ in a lot of things, but we all agree on one thing, and that is that abstinence. Is the uh, is the baseline for any any successful recovery when it comes to addiction, drugs and alcohol,
1: and and you have to find some program and work your own program of recovery. And uh, next week, actually, I talk with Dr. Ken Winters about how. Um, if sending people to the inappropriate levels of care can do more harm than good so that should be a real interesting show also so who could benefit from outpatient counseling or in other words who would it be appropriate for
2: well it, it's appropriate for primarily for for people who are not if I might take the, the negative for a moment people who are not suffering from vegetative or physical issues uh, where they need to be in a hospital, but but uh, uh, or folks who are, are are dealing with severe emotional issues, where a good uh, uh, rehab setting would be very helpful for them. Okay, and then come out and be part of an outpatient setting. But primarily speaking, people who who have uh, are not suffering from any any uh, physical problems uh, such as. Uh, uh, needing detox or things like that, that can be done and then they can start it in an outpatient program. But but uh, they have to have a reasonable amount of impulse control. Uh-huh. In other words, there has to be some some commitment to that abstinence figure we talk about. Because abstinence belongs to the patient, not the counselors. Uh-huh. And and that gets to be kind of an issue at times with uh, some of the media and so forth, but uh, that's the baseline. Any counselor that thinks he's going to get a patient uh, abstinent and sober by his own volition is going to be a very disappointed human being most of the time. So, um, But that belongs, in, and the patient has to understand that to start with, that that belongs to him. Getting comfortable with that abstinence and sobriety is, is the counselor's job. He can help that person get comfortable with being abstinent, and sober. So,
1: how you know, and and this is something that you know early in this field, I sometimes uh, struggle with is setting those healthy boundaries, and uh, and when there are failures, you know, with individuals, how how have you set those healthy boundaries to to keep your sanity? And sometimes this very um, insane field, I guess, is the best way to put it.
2: I think I, I think the the um, that's the nice thing about outpatient settings is is we're not locked into a a fifteen thirty or forty five day program or a ninety day program. We're not locked into that. We we can we can maintain persistence and and work with the patient and maintain that relationship long term. And if the patient. Uh, drifts off uh, for a while stay in touch from time to time and back uh, and they usually and customarily if you've got a good relationship going will come back into treatment and and uh, and continue i don't like the word get started again because recovery is a journey it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's it's a time after time experience and there's no such thing as i don't believe anyway there's no such thing as a bad treatment um, I've heard stories, but but I haven't really run into any bad treatments. I, what I would have run into is people who give up on patients, and and that that that's sad when that happens.
1: Uh, what I can. Um Really relate to as we talk about that program and how it changes to meet the need of the individual. Um, and I remember when uh, I was going through treatment, you know, uh, we, we talked so much about that post traumatic stress, the history of what happened over those 30 days. When I got out, I did another two months of very intensive uh, treatment at a halfway house. And uh, when I got to Jerry, um, it was less talking you know, about the past. Certainly we did that quite often, but the sessions molded to what I needed as the years progressed. So as I um, started getting more comfortable in my recovery, the conversation started moving towards how can I find happiness in my personal life, build the businesses, things like that. Are there some people that outpatient therapy would not be appropriate for and and if so if you got a referral um did an assessment and said it's the wrong level how would you handle that
2: Well there there are people who who would not fit into the into the um uh outpatient setting immediately speaking and and mainly there are folks who who really have trouble with impulse control they they uh they're going, to, they're going to struggle with maintaining abstinence and sobriety, and they have a record of that in previous treatments. Uh, that needs to be addressed at the time and help that person get into an inpatient setting or rehab setting, um, a residential kind of setting for a period of time to, to
1: get a, a handle on the, on, on the using and, the, and so forth. And we have to take a quick commercial break here from our sponsors. But when we come back, more with Jerry Flanagan.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of my recovery project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse.
3: My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high, Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, StopHeroinWI, and a website, stopheroinnow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs, stopheroinnow.org, so no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472- Five seven nine two. That's one eight six six four seven two fifty seven ninety two. Or send us an email at Jacob Jansen at I Took the Now back to the show. Hello
1: and welcome back. Uh, you are listening to I Took the High Road, and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show is My Counselor and I with my counselor, Jerry Flanagan. And before the break, we were talking about who would be appropriate for uh, outpatient treatment? And I can think back to uh, right about the first time that I met him. Uh, it was an intervention. My parents uh, kind of brought me to him. It wasn't, uh, he didn't come to my house. I went to the facility, so I knew something was going on. Uh, we had maybe an hour, hour and a half discussion, and at that point, um, I came to the own conclusion that I had a serious problem after talking with him and really needed to do something about it. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the first step into to really getting me help and getting me out of trouble. So I just have to say thank you, Jerry, for kind of starting that journey for me and into recovery through that intervention process. So um, in general, when you're working with a client, how and where do you start as a therapist?
2: Well, I, I think one of the one of the primary experiences that have to take place, and uh, when you're starting with a new client, is you have to join with that client. That client has to become comfortable with just being with you. And my initial session with that client, outside of a intervention setting, is is. Uh, is to spend uh, 45 minutes or an hour with that client uh, in a casual conversation. Yes, we talk about the issues at hand and what he's struggling with or she's struggling with uh, and the like, but more of a conversation than a a question and answer session. And so I can get a feel for whether he or she is comfortable with me uh, if it's someone I feel I can work with uh, and there's no charge normally for that. The only time there would be a charge is if if it was mandated that they had to come to the clinic for a, for some reason um, but uh, usually and customarily that's not the case so uh, that's primary joining with that client joining uh, getting comfortable they they with me and me with them so uh, so we can get started on the right foot and. And get the information we need. So,
1: okay. So, as that person um, starts getting into the treatment process, you know, they go through uh, Prochaska stages of change as one model. How does your counseling method? Change as the person progresses through the stages of change of recovery. I know for me, uh, it went from you know kind of focusing on the history and the uh, things that caused the cravings for me to uh, some of the life issues that I was facing, how to move forward a little bit more, and uh, the focus shift more from the drug addiction to more my personal issues that I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, is that typical, or, or how how do you change or judge that?
2: Well, it's typical for the individual client. Okay. <laughs> Best answer I can give you, Jake. Uh, but it's a good question. Uh, uh, the, you know, oft times a client will at some point in their treatment look at you and say, you know, I, I, I'm not the same as that person. My, my issue is not the same as their issue, um, whatever that might be at the time and the reality is uh, the client is 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 right about that because treatment is individual it, it's not a it's not a uh, cookie cutter kind of thing where everybody one size fits all and everybody fits into the right little parameters it's not how it is in in good outpatient care uh, in the impaired, I do the impaired professional program, and that especially is individual.
1: I was going to say, if it was a cookie cutter fix, we wouldn't have a problem anymore. I don't think we that's have right. a Solution, we could, to, we it's it, so multifaceted. We, so right, we could just uh,
2: slip them into that little parameter, and and they get fixed. Well, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So, so yes, and everybody goes through the same system of grief in terms of getting better and finding that comfort and of course the primary goal of any good counseling process is that the patient, I'm talking drug and alcohol counseling now, is that the patient becomes their own counselor at some point in the activity. So so uh, that's the primary goal of any good counseling process. So that may take one person a year, a year and a quarter, or six months, it might take them two years, might take them three years in some cases. So. But uh, and yes, I do have people who stay in the IPP program up to three and four years. So, <laughs> so but by their own choice. There's no yes, mandate, yes. with
1: that's concerned. So yep. I've yeah. been out of the court systems now for. Uh 10 or 11 months and have still decided to continue to go to the professional groups because I find that it helps me. It's a, I right. think uh, I've had this conversation with many parents before when I do interventions that even people who weren't on drugs and alcohol could probably really benefit for some counseling every once in a while and you know some support and help. So hmm. what is the best way to get a hold of Alliance Counseling Center if people want more information?
2: The, the, the best way to get a hold of uh, the Counseling Center is just go online, AllianceCounselingCenter.com. And uh, all of our, we have, we have uh, currently eight licensed therapists in the clinics and in the process of putting on two more. But the reality is just go online. All the bios are there. Everything is there. Uh, gives, them, gives you their strengths, pictures. There's also pictures of them. Uh, and so forth and and they also have their individual phone numbers. The appointments are made individually with the therapist so so you don't have a, uh, a girl sitting at a desk in the in the lobby deciding who you're going to see. you decide that and and uh, people like that. people like to make their own choices you
1: know and uh, you were the Owner uh, of the facility or, or co-owner for quite a while, uh, and you decided to pull in some really good counselors. What makes a good counselor? What did you look for in hiring and finding these people and, and hiring your staff?
2: Well, primarily uh, you're getting into you're getting into an area now of, of personnel and administration, but but primarily um, well, I was I was the the founder of Alliance Counseling back in in August of 1998 and and uh, uh situation uh Dr. Kelly and I uh, put it together and and uh, uh now there's eight of us uh, soon to be 10 but what I look for primarily is is uh, people who 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 truly have a niche in terms of something special that they bring to the counseling center in terms of treatment of their of our clientele, so that so that um, uh, the therapist can benefit from the experience as well financially, uh, because unless he's unless he's benefiting or she's benefiting financially, uh, and the patient uh, is paying their bill, uh, there's not <laughs> there's not going to be a happy camper there, and and. But the but the the patient's going to pay his bill if he's benefiting uh, from the experience that he's having. So, yeah, um, I, I'm easy, Those are more of a method of measurement, I think, than 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 being able to figure that out to start with. But people who have had some experience, particularly experience uh, um, we we look for, experienced people people who know how to be in the outpatient setting, working on a fee-for-service basis, yeah.
1: Now, you, you mentioned Suboxone a couple times in our conversation, and when I uh, got clean, I'm so happy I didn't go the maintenance route and get on Suboxone, but it does work uh, for some people. Uh, what does that group entail? How, how do you decide who's appropriate for that, and how do the people get the Suboxone and treatment they need? What How does that work?
2: Okay. Okay. With, uh, with our clinic, again, it's a small percentage that, that are on the suboxone uh, regimen. Uh, Dr. Kelly, our medical director, is, is the uh, medical person involved with the suboxone program, and Dan Bird is the person who, 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 who uh, does the counseling with the suboxone program. Uh, it's normally a person who just simply has very little impulse control, has had, in most cases, some inpatient setting, uh, treatment and care. So at least that advantage has been, has been um, uh, approached, and that hasn't been successful. Uh, and then if we determine in our staffings and so forth that this person can become or is a danger to themselves uh, without some medical support such as Suboxone, uh, we will then uh, meet with Dr. Kelly and develop a plan to put them on Suboxone. But Suboxone isn't a long-term experience. It's, it's to take care of things in the short term so, so that the um,
1: outpatient treatment can take hold. Yeah, well, and, and unfortunately, sometimes it does go on way too long, and that's really the inexperience of the uh, wh- whoever's administering it to not taper the people down properly. Right. You spoke of one of the things, uh, impulse control. The people uh, uh, who may have lack of impulse control, it might be appropriate for. Is there a way to start building that impulse control or helping somebody do that? Well,
2: impulse control uh, oftentimes oft comes as a result of, of the, the intensity of the, of the primary outpatient program. I, I feel uh, that, that uh, uh, there is a degree of impulse control that is needed initially uh, to get started in an outpatient setting. So if, if the impulse control is a struggle, is a bad struggle uh, and inpatient treatment has not been used yet, that's the best route to go to, to get that
1: connection made. How has alcohol and drug treatment changed since you started in the field? Oh, gracious. <laughs> uh, Jake uh,
2: shared with you that I've been in the field for 25 years. Uh, I wasn't going to date myself, but I came into the field in August of 1980. That's uh, 35 years ago almost. So, oh, wow. So, so uh <laughs> And and I've been in recovery now about thirty six years, thirty seven years. So
1: congratulations. So, but at
2: any rate, um, um, the the uh, uh, the the program uh, hit me with a
1: question again. Uh, how has the drug and alcohol treatment changed since oh, yeah. you started working in the yeah. field? Uh, I've seen it. <laughs> oh gracious, back to that
2: one again. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah. um yeah trying uh, to forget
1: the question.
2: <laughs> yeah. It has changed so much. When I first came into the program, I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible because it's a long answer to a question. Um, so I'm going to make it real short. But when I first came into the program, uh, into uh, drug and alcohol treatment, everything was inpatient. One size cuts all thirty days inpatient and, and if not longer if not longer yeah. ninety days in some cases right uh and and uh, and you came out and you were cured and and that's exactly how they felt about it uh a lot of recidivism because of it and 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 uh, and uh, not enough follow up and you know patient support and things like that and incidentally, I also recommend to 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 all of our patients, at least to acquaint them with the twelve-step programs in the community, and and uh, it isn't necessary to be successful in our treatment regimen, but but uh, at least as a community support base does help them uh, look at an alternative to to uh, to using or drinking on a given day. So. Uh, I'd like to at least acquaint them with it and encourage it if they like it. So, but uh, yeah, it, everything was thirty days and and you were cured. Well, it's not that way, and the insurance companies uh, decided it wasn't going to be <laughs> that way anymore, and so they quit paying for inpatient care for 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 the basic uh, impulse control issues on that basis only if there was no medical need. So it became a medical need thing which really cut down the inpatient setting admissions. And, and then it went to primary outpatient care. And the same, the same criteria was needed to be in primary outpatient care that, that was needed to be an inpatient and made it very difficult. There was a period of years and it was really difficult to get anybody approved. For outpatient treatment and it, through insurance companies, and so it went, kind of basically to a to a cash basis program. And and uh, and yes, uh, the counselors that survived those changes um, and stayed in the business had to make adjustments accordingly and set their own limits as to what they were willing to tolerate in terms of treatment and care. By that, I mean. Uh, were they going to treat the insurance company or were they going to treat the patient and and those of us who decided to treat the patient uh, yes uh, it was a more difficult adjustment <laughs> but but uh but in the long haul it paid off to go that route because because uh, you got a lot of referrals from people who were successful and and instead of people who were not successful <laughs> and and uh, so forth. So, uh, it's kind of a broad brush answer, but but that's basically what it amounted to. Is, is the insurance companies dictated a lot of changes in terms of reimbursement, and counselors had to adjust. And those of us who stayed with the with the premise that the patient came first, uh, and and yes, uh, there were some lean years in there when we, when we took that position. But but uh, uh, in the long haul, it 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 paid off for both the patient and the and and again we're in the lake country,
1: which helps. So sure, thirty seven years of sobriety. Again, I got to congratulate you on that. What what uh, what is the key to thirty seven years of you know successful long term sobriety? I know you mentioned one of them as support, finding support. Are there some other things that have helped you get this far? Yeah,
2: it's keeping the program on a day at a time basis. One day at a time. We always talk about how, you know, who's got the longest time on the program? Well, the guy that got up first this morning is the one who got that got the longest time on <laughs> the program. And that's a reality. I've seen a lot of people lapse and relapse at fifteen, twenty, twenty five years. Uh, and there are sad relapses when they happen. But it's it's maintaining your program on a daily basis and, and uh And keeping in mind that, you know, your length of time in the program is only this 24-hour period.
1: Yeah, and and if you can't tell, uh, Mm -hmm. my counselor, Jerry, he's a a big believer in 12-step meetings. I used them for uh, the first few years, and I found some other things in my recovery. Uh, But on that note, we got to take a quick commercial break from our sponsors. And when we return, uh, more with Jerry Flanagan. Mm
3: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, StopHeroinWI, and a website, stopheroinnow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org so no parent ever has to receive that phone call.
1: Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse.
3: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at Jansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show.
1: You are listening to I Took the High Road, and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show is my counselor and I with my counselor, Jerry Flanagan. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about how drug and alcohol treatment has changed um, over the last few decades. The question that I have coming into this now is, why is good help for substance abuse hard to find? oftentimes expensive, and not covered by most insurance. Do you think we're going to see that change? Or?
2: I, I, I'm going to be frank, Jake. Uh, I, if it changes, it's not going to be a change, or doesn't appear to be a change for the better from the standpoint of, of the usual and customary client being covered for drug and alcohol treatment. Uh, it's getting harder and harder even to get them covered for mental health treatment and some of those issues so um, what's happening what's happening with a good most of the exchange Obamacare units and and the uh, uh, regular insurance coverage programs which many corporations have the they either do not cover drug and alcohol treatment at all or the the uh, the deductible where the drug and alcohol treatment is concerned or mental health treatment is concerned is very very high or just generally speaking the the deductible for the insurance policy is very high so we're talking back to cash again and when i say high i mean anywhere from $2500 to to $10,000 deductibles with with 40 to you know 20 to 40% copays so uh and I don't see that getting much better. I just don't. Um, and so what most, what most treatment settings such as ours have done is we've gone to cash package and, and we've gone to uh, um, programs that, that uh, uh, would be less expensive in terms of primary outpatient and aftercare treatment. Um, so their insurance doesn't dictate what they can and can't do, so uh again, uh, that's for people who are not on the exchanges so so and,
1: and again i I have to say. I- I, I agree with you that, you know, when I deal with insurance companies all the time and people who are in active heroin addiction, that I'll deal with hospitals that won't take them because they say it's non-life threatening, um, insurance companies that won't pay for treatment because they haven't done lower levels prior and failed out mm-hmm. of those levels first. Uh, you see huge issues. I mean, even back four and a half years ago, um, I didn't have insurance had you know had to borrow from my parents. parents paid for treatment to to get that done. I see a lot of that happening now too, and even with the such uh, the social stigmas that are attached with drug addiction and getting treatment, I see professionals in the industry, even with good insurance, who don't want to put it on the insurance because they're worried about other people finding it through those companies right
2: so, um, and they can do that, Jake. As long as it's not insurance bought on the exchange, there the head deductibles and everything have to be used. So uh, that's a sad experience, not a good experience.
1: You know, I, yeah. I definitely think society as we move. You know, this hustle and bustle society quicker. People can't take a month off their job anymore. The treatment is going to move moving to these shorter detox periods and then more intensive outpatient programs, treatment programs um, of that nature. And it kind of, you know, is is a disappointment. I wish more people would cover because I know how important those 30 days are not to just stop using the substance but to really break habits that it takes – longer than a week to sort of break certain habits that have been ingrained for years and years. Well,
2: and, and the, the difficult part of it is is the alternative to the inpatient setting or residential setting is always the intensive outpatient program, which few places have anymore. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is it costs so much to man those programs and the income from them is so so low. So as a result, there's not very many of them anymore. But the bottom line is, even in those programs, the client has to have a degree of impulse control for them to work. Otherwise, they go in there for that two or three hours a day, three days a week, and and tell lots of stories for, for the duration. Well, that doesn't get them better.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the sad part of it we were talking prior to the show about uh, Milwaukee's mental health complex you know potentially closing um, and we've seen that happen with halfway houses the Lawrence Center treatment facility closed in Waukesha a few years ago um, but our jails in Waukesha and our prisons are getting bigger why does incarceration not work for nonviolent drug offenders
2: well primarily because when we're talking about addicted people, now I'm talking about addicted people who are in the system. In other words, probation, parole. And it's hard to get out. And it's hard to get <laughs> out. Probation, control, parole, and Huber facilities, and even in jail, uh, who are there primarily for their drug use or drug, uh, uh, some, some, some issue related to drugs but no, but no uh, conviction of any kind beyond that. In other words, they're not there for burglary or theft or, or, for, or for some kind of physical assault or things like that. Like they're, my case. Yeah. They're, they're, you're talking about drugs primarily and, and only, and in, in, in a good many, a good most of those cases. Well, you've got a person whose self-esteem, their, their, their spiritual base is pretty well depleted, their self-esteem and sense of self-worth is in the, you know, is in the pit to start with, and then you bring them to court and 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 bring the gavel down on them and and give them give them six months or a year in, in Huber or jail or whatever it is. So what's left of the self-esteem is then basically destroyed. There's absolutely nothing to rebuild that self-esteem in in the criminal system, where if they were allowed to go to treatment. If they're allowed to get treatment and be in treatment, those people would get better. They just truly would get better. Now I'm talking the non-violent, the non-violent uh, uh, person who who who, uh, who has a drug problem. That person will get better with treatment.
1: It it blew my mind when I was in there that um, I was with violent criminals, people, you know, burglarizing, uh, violent assaults, putting people in hospitals that would, uh, over my nine-month period, these people would come in and finish their sentence before me, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I, I uh, mine just drug charges, but yet there's these people who are going, oh, you know, the, this charge, we're going to let you out in three months. I did nine, um, you know, and on top, we're going to, if you're good in here, we're going to Cut off 75% of your sentence, which in Waukesha County, if you're a drug offender, you have to do your full time. But if uh, you have almost any other charge, you can get out on good behavior bracelet after 75%. So it was almost like they were punishing uh, the drug addict, saying, you know, it's such a moral failing. You're such a bad person. We don't know what to do with you. We got to keep the community safe and lock you up long term. And I know for me, making things more difficult did not make things better for me. Uh, I have so much post traumatic stress from that nine months of incarceration, far more than my nine years of using that's and we've talked about some of the nightmares that i've had in counseling because of incarceration, not using um, i i I think jake that that uh, if a person has broken the
2: law uh, and demonstrated that that uh, uh, that their behavior was such that, that it's a threat to the general public, yes, they should be incarcerated. Uh, but there, again, if it's a nonviolent uh, situation and primarily drugs, uh, drugs uh, need to be addressed, and they're, they're not addressed in the Huber facility. They're not addressed in jail.
1: Oh, and, and we yeah. could get drugs in the Huber facilities or oh, in yeah. jails if you yeah, wanted yeah. to. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hear that all you the know, time, I, yeah. I, can, uh, I took this conversation... Um, Uh, a a step further, um, with my father, uh, we were talking about how penalties right now, uh, people say, you know, are drug addicted and they go out and rob a gas station. Okay. Uh, It would be a whole lot more black and white if treatment was so available and had less of a stigma attached to it. If these people had that decision to say, I want to go out and get free help or free treatment or that stigma wasn't there and they could make that decision to do that, um, if that was in place for them and they still went out and robbed a gas station or a pharmacy or something like that, it would make it a whole lot easier to say, We did everything we could. We tried to put treatment in place. It still didn't work. Okay, this person's a danger to society.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, why are there so many stigmas attached with drug use, and what do we have to do to start changing that?
2: Well, I think I I think it's
1: you know I think back to when
2: I first came in this business in 1980 uh, to what it is today. I I think there has been a great deal of of uh, of progress made in terms of of how people feel about people who've had alcohol or drug problems, uh, I think I, I think what has to happen uh, in time to come with education in terms of the public is that a person that is that is addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs, that is not who they are. It's it's what they have as a as a um, as a problem for themselves, and in in owning that and taking that in and owning that, they can plainly say to themselves, "Yes, uh, 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 this belongs to me. this drug problem belongs to me. The things I did with the drugs belong to me, but really, it isn't who i am and and uh, but that only works if change takes place if the if the if the using stops, if, if the person develops impulse control that's healthy and changes take place globally in their life, they get better at home, they get better at work, they get better in their communities and so forth where they, where they live and begin to contribute as a person in their communities, um, then that stigma goes, goes away for them. For them, so I think it comes still comes down to an individual situation. Yes, there's some stigma out there, but it's not what it was 35 years ago.
1: And and that's good, and it's hopefully programs like this and conversations right. and you know the speaking events at the schools that are starting uh, to change that. Um, and when we talk about change i remember i was ten and a half months clean before i was sentenced and that really talks to the slow process of the court systems you know and and i was a year and a half i got my charge was put out on probation used for a couple more months couldn't figure out help got into treatment got clean and was ten and a half months sentenced when i went into court was working a job again and going to school had multiple letters of recommendation ten and a half months clean change made and they're now still going to punish me. And they threw nine months down on me, mm-hmm. and I had to do all that. I remember that very difficult time. Um, do you remember that? Do you ever think I was going to make it through that period? I was a walking zombie, if well, you remember it. it. it, it so,
2: that's, a difficult, yeah. that's a difficult pill to swallow. It truly is. <coughs> when you've made so many changes in your life and things have gone so well in terms of recovery, uh, and then right in the heels of it, you get nailed with it. With a um, with a legal charge that that uh, sets you down for ten months to a year. That's it, it becomes very conflictive individually. And and uh, uh, again, like you hear so many times, the law is the law. And and yes, we have to we have to respond to the law as it's written. If we don't
1: like that, work hard at changing it. Okay. So uh, we got just about a minute left. Do you have any final mes- message for our listeners today?
2: I think, I think the, the best message I can give folks when it comes to addiction and treatment and so forth is, is maintain encouragement and support and be persistent in your asking for change and recovery.
1: You certainly got to do that, and I thank you for uh, your persistence and staying with me and uh, training me as an interventionist. Um, We got still about a minute left. I'm not getting the cutoff here. So, um, again, if somebody wanted more information on Alliance Counseling, where would they go to get that?
2: Well, again, uh, the, the fastest and best way to get that with programs and everything is in the uh, internet website uh, alliancecounselingcenter.com and all the bios all the pictures everything's in there um, you can even there's even email addresses in there to the individual therapists so you can you can you can talk directly with the therapist uh, when you when you go on the website so uh, it's kind of a neat setup it is.
1: It uh, is. Individualized. And, it. and hopefully I'm going to help them move towards uh, Skype conferencing through counseling. Also, well, That would be so wonderful. Our, our uh, nationwide listeners yeah. can tap in uh, right here with some of the best counselors in the Midwest. So uh, that's all the time we have for our show today. Um, it was a great one. Thank you so much, Jerry, uh, for coming on the show. And
2: thank you, Jake, for asking me. No problem. Hope I can be of help.
1: Oh, you were, and I'm uh, yeah. sure people have learned a lot from this process, and hopefully, they uh, decide to get that aftercare help that they need and so deserve. So, uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for uh, listening into our show today, and please join us next week uh, when we have Dr. Ken Winters on the show to talk about appropriate levels of treatment and how drugs affect the adolescent brain. I'm Jake Jansen. Have a great week and enjoy life. Okay.
2: Good.
0: Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.